Welcome to Fear City, a podcast where we delve into the stories, lives, places and events that built the greatest capital city in the world. I'm PJ. And I'm Satu. And we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser known history of London. Here on Fierce City, we always choose stories to tell that take place somewhere within London's boundaries. When PJ and I are talking about what parts of history we want to do an episode on... And agreeing sometimes and sometimes not. Mostly not. We ask each other, but is it London enough? If it's not, we move on. Uh, We'll figure out what we want to talk about a building in London or an event that took place here or something that could only really have happened in London. But London has a much bigger identity than just four quarters hemmed in by the graceful round of eternity that is the M25. I'm very fond of the M25. I can't drive, so I don't really know. London's power and influence doesn't come just from what people have done and created while living in it. During the British Empire... (laughs) You're so anti the British Empire. Well, okay. London became just the tip of the iceberg of a massive network that spanned the world, funneling money and things back home in industrial quantities. I don't hate the British Empire, I just think we don't talk about it enough. Right, well, we're going to probably talk about it on this episode. People have been moving to London for thousands of years, from Rome, from the Caribbean even, or even just from Slough. And today we're going to talk about the journey of objects rather than people. London didn't just end up with one of the world's greatest collections of art and artefacts by chance. Ever since someone invented a ship that could cross the ocean, we've been showing up in other people's countries, seeing their nicest stuff, and then taking it for ourselves. That's how we've ended up with the epic treasure trove that is the British Museum. So in today's episode, we're going to focus on a few things that London arguably stole, telling the story of their journey to our fair capital, It's a variety episode. Yay! So come along with us as we journey back and travel the globe to discover what London stole. So one story that I'm going to tell is about an allegedly stolen artefact that's caused a curse and and also includes a haunted underground station. Ooh. The story of the so-called unlucky mummy started during the 1860s when a group of travellers in Egypt found a wooden mummy coffin which dated back to around 90 BC. This mummy is a kind of archetypal looking mummy. If you kind of imagine, conjure in your mind's eye what mummy looks like. So it's a female mummy and the case has got dark eyeliner and it's got golden wooden skin and it's adorned with lots of Egyptian symbols and, and iconography. So it's classic kind of the mummy movie fair. And the name of the deceased was not marked on the case, but it was presumed that the mummy was of a high rank, perhaps royal, and was known as the Priestess of Amun-Ra. So the group of four travellers took this mummy from its home and brought it back to England. And the tale goes that two of the men were shot dead soon after arriving back home, and the other two died in poverty shortly thereafter. The mummy made its way to a sister of one of the unlucky four, who immediately complained of her Holland Park house suffering a series of misfortunes. Celebrated clairvoyant of the time, Madame Helen Blavatsky, was called and she concluded that the artefact was cursed. So, in July 1889, the mummy was donated to the British Museum, and things only got worse. Clairvoyance and sort of spiritualists at this time was such a big deal. Do you remember in our Sherlock Holmes episode we talked about how Arthur Conan Doyle was like well into this? And he, a smart man, and many other smart people of the time, just sort of adopted this as their way of thinking about like the afterlife. It was kind of a liberal time, wasn't it? In, in liberal society. So maybe religion was becoming less of a be all and end all. Quite. 
the British Museum actually had its own tube station, and that was opened in 1900 and was part of what we now know to be the Central Line. There were reports that the British Museum was accessible from the tube station directly, and a tunnel led immediately into none other than the room of the unlucky mummy. There were reports of a figure of an Egyptian princess wandering the tunnels at night, screaming, and the newspapers even offered a reward to anybody who would stay overnight at the station. Would you take that up, Sassy? I was just thinking about that. Uh... I just don't think that sort of thing is worth it. Do you know what I mean? Like, how big would the reward have to be? Because I might simply die of fright and then, as a dead person, not able to take up my reward. I was mainly thinking, would they give me a bed? We are very different because it hadn't really crossed my mind. I was thinking about the supernatural element. No, I'm right. So, would you not even sleep in a non haunted underground station? (laughs) One of my questions would be the the thread count. (laughs) And then we'd go from there. On the mummy. Hey! So this haunting allegedly led to the station closing down in 1933. And two years later, two women disappeared from the nearby Hoban tube station and scratch marks were found at the abandoned British Museum station. I mean, look, this is all hot nonsense. You know, that these like, oh, apparently the story goes. Well, I am and suspend your disbelief for one moment. Well, who, who were these two women? What were these scratch marks? What someone randomly went to the British Museum locked up underground station and investigated scratch marks? The mummy was quickly moved away from its location near the underground and can still be seen today at the British Museum in room 62. Now, of course, this is complete and utter nonsense, but it makes a good story, right? The truth behind the myth is kind of a lot more boring. Good. I like more boring but truthful things. Yeah, that's one of the main reasons why you're the fun one. In fact, the mummy was kind of nothing of the sort. It was just the lid that would have contained the coffin of a mummified body. So the thing that came over didn't contain a mummy at all. So in fact, it doesn't look anything like a classic mummy that you might Well, it does, because the, the lid of the coffin looks like it's, you know, it's painted as a mummy. It's not what I think of when someone says mummy. I do, because it, you don't think of like a mummified body necessarily. I literally do. Well, I think that a lot of people think of kind of the eyeliner, Tutankhamun casing of a mummy. Okay, I'm prepared to agree about that. And whilst the lid, or the mummy board as it's called, is as ornate and awesome as I described, it's not the source of any kind of curse. The mummy board did indeed find its way over from Egypt and was appropriated from some tourists, but its donation wasn't as a result of any kind of foul play. Oh, well, that's good, because that's one of the few items in this episode that won't involve any foul play. Well, the fact that they took it from Egypt is kind of without permission is fairly foul play, if you think of it that way. And whilst there was a British Museum underground station, it's actually quite far away from the British Museum itself. And so the reports of any tunnel from the station is greatly exaggerated. And the station closed down not because of hauntings, but because it was outperformed by the new Hoban station that was opened. Back in the 1900s, the tube lines were all privately owned, and so stations either thrived or failed in the spirit of capitalist competition. The story of the women being snatched by the mummy probably was all a big PR stunt to drum up interest in a movie called Bulldog Jack, which um, featured a sarcophagus leading from the British Museum down to the tube. Uh The folklore surrounding the mummy is actually embraced by the British Museum, and it kind of adds some flavour to its uh, exhibition about the mummies. 
So sadly, there's no truth in any evil mummy in Room 62. Well, I'm pleased that there isn't an evil mummy roaming the streets of Bloomsbury, to be honest. But I love, I do think all like Egyptian artifacts and mummies are absolutely amazingly cool. If you were born in the 80s and you grew up watching the mummy movies, it it kind of really triggers something. Totally. The originals, or what I think of as the originals, obviously not like 1920s ones, but like... um, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. Oh my god, this. You know so Brendan good. Fraser looks busted now. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? He doesn't. He hasn't aged well. Oh really? Rachel Did... Weisz looks fantastic. Rachel Weisz is so glowingly amazing. She's about twice as old as you think she is. I know. Anyway, we we digress. Do you have a story? <laughs> Clearly, I do. So the next set of artifacts also come from a place in Africa. In the gallery of the British Museum, there lies a collection of brass objects described by the Guardian's art critic, Jonathan Jones. Yours is already so much more highbrow than mine. Yeah, sorry, I've kind of realised the tone is so really off. But look, just run along with me here. So these uh, artefacts are at once imaginative and classical, with a compelling mixture of smoothness and sharpness, natural observation and unforced fantasy. Brass was the preferred medium of the royal art of Benin. These are the Benin bronzes, super famous, because its redness is beautiful and menacing, with an authority and a fiery presence that makes this art live. How did these amazing works come to be in the British Museum's glass cases, and who brought them there, PJ? Will you tell us, that too? I will. So the Kingdom of Benin, which is slightly confusingly not affiliated with the modern country of Benin, okay. so this is a good start, existed between the 12th century and precisely the year 1897, and I'm afraid the precise nature of that year is uh, a sad story. So, the Kingdom of Benin is located in modern Nigeria, and we have a 16th century description of its capital, Benin City, from a Dutch guy called Olfoot Dapper, who I mainly mention because he's a great name. You love a name. I love person, a great name. You? He described in his book called Descriptions of Africa, this incredibly kind of steampunk, very awesome, like almost like magically uh, highly technological city of the Victorian times. It is divided into many palaces, houses and apartments of the courtiers, resting on wooden pillars from top to bottom covered with cast copper, on which are engraved the pictures of their war exploits and battles. Every roof is decorated with a small turret, on which birds are standing, birds casting copper with outspread wings. So just to kind of zoom out a second, all of the accounts of Benin, it really is this kind of magical city that is a bit like ancient Rome in terms of how you look at it now. It's really like, not to reduce it, but like Game of Thrones territory. It really genuinely is. Um, You know, like the Game of Thrones map, I can completely imagine Benin City being there. Like, so everything's um, really super ornate and covered in these like engraved birds and copper things. And they have these enormous street lamps, like, but huge, like I'm trying to think what the, like the size of the bell in Big Ben or something like super massive street lamps. There's actually photos of it before it all uh, before 1897 happens. <laughs> so yeah, just like imagine the African Victorian London. So in 1897, in keeping with its policy everywhere of completely ignoring local rules, the British invaded Benin over a tax-related issue. Got to respect taxes. The glories of war. They burned down the entirety of the capital that we've just described, and every other village and settlement they came across, and deposed the King of Benin, Oba of Ovon Ramwan. A British soldier describes the day. We shelled the village and cleared it of the natives. As the launch and surf boats grounded, we jumped into the water, at once placed our maxims, machine guns, in position, firing so as to clear the bush where the natives might be hiding. Actually, I'm not even going to read the rest of it. It makes me too sad. So oh, thousands... Go on, it's for posterity. The last bit is just, our black troops with the scouts in front and a few maxims do all the fighting. 
So they made like their local hired soldiers go in and do the dirty works grim. Not the finest hour for the British. I mean, it's pretty much all just a plateau of not finest hours when you get into imperial history. But yeah, so thousands of people were killed. When the British tracked the king down, they made him kneel and put his face in the dust. The top Brit, Ralph Moore, said to him, there is only one king in the country and that is the white man. Oh, Swiss, it's so embarrassing. Okay. I mean, to, not, not in any way to defend these horrible actions, but in terms of the animosity, to maybe describe and add some colour to it, is that all of the British envoys that were sent over were, like, sacrificed and killed. There was lots of violence. I know there's lots of violence. I mean, I'm just saying that they probably felt unjustifiably mm. that that they were wronged because the great british empire sent envoys and they were killed oh yeah do you know what it is about this it's like that's why i said i don't hate the british empire at the beginning because it's it's in the past so there's nothing we can do to go back and change it like we can't change genghis khan <laughs> do you know what i mean i don't hate genghis khan or do i but some of this stuff just like still makes you feel icky now when it's about like you're making people put their face in the dust and like degrade them and stuff. It just oh yeah, it's horrible. I just thought it was it's interesting to see why this is not just aggression for the sake of aggression. There's lots of other things going on, obviously. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I can just bundle it all up into the history of male violence. But um, you you encourage me not to get too into that on every single episode of Fear City, <laughs> so I shan't. So yeah, they're, they're burning Edo to the ground. They steal all its stuff. And uh, some of these beautiful uh, art objects ended up at the British Museum. The treasures of Benin are their bronzes, which I described at the beginning. They're like sculptures of human heads, which is so cool, and like decorated plaques. When the British Museum received its batch of bronzes, they had to clean a thick layer of blood off them because they had been hanging on the walls of a room where human sacrifice had been practised. So there's one um, really interesting cultural legacy of the Benin bronzes being in the British Museum. Which is, uh, I know that you've seen Black Panther. Did we see Black Panther together? I think so. You know the scene where Killmonger uh, takes the vibranium object from the Museum of Great Britain? Oh, yeah. Uh, the very thinly veiled <laughs> Museum of Great Britain. It brilliantly summarises... Which doesn't exist, by the way. No, no, so it's meant to be the British Museum. Yeah. Yeah, so the, uh, it covers the issue of looted African objects in Western museums. He comes in and like the snooty art, like museum curator is a bit like, oh, what do you want with being in this museum? And it, you know, like is obviously being racist. And then um, in Black Panther style, everything just gets smashed up and they steal the vibranium object. It's a lot of fun. The other cultural legacy is that genuinely, when I went to see these things in the British Museum, my brain expanded like three or five times, let's say. I was so like, what is this art? It's just not like anything I've seen before. They look so modern in a weird way. Don't they? Partly they kind of were part of the inspiration for the modernist art movement. So that in a way doesn't surprise me. Not go me down that rabbit hole. Well, I know. So I won't read out my four-part paragraph that I had on other cultural influences. We'll just move on at this stage. We'll move on to a story that I have researched, which is about the Koh-i-Noor diamond. Have you heard of that? Yeah, so you've gone with something really sparkly and nice. Basically. I think of it as the equivalent to, like, it's the UK's Hope Diamond. Obviously, I think the Hope Diamond is probably the most famous diamond. I actually don't know about this. Oh, wow, okay. I know about the Koh-i-Noor. The Hope Diamond obviously isn't in London, it's in Washington, D.C. It was, though, briefly in London during the Great Exhibition in Mm. 1851, and we've spoken about that Great Exhibition before at Crystal Palace. But the Hope Diamond wasn't actually the centre of attention back in 1851. The most famous diamond displayed pride of place in the central nave under a large birdcage-like cage sitting on top of a red cushion was the Koh-i-Noor Diamond. And how that diamond came to be snatched is the topic of this part of what London stole. 
So, the Kohenor diamond, which means mountain of light in Persian, is an ancient jewel, with some claiming it was discovered 5,000 years ago in the banks of a river in central India. The diamond was 190 metric carats and was one of the greatest treasures of India and was kept in Indian hands until it was taken by the Mongols. In 1526, it was valued by the Mughal emperor as worth two and a half days' food of the entire world. That is an amazing way to measure something. Isn't it cool? And this diamond represented more than just wealth. It represented victory. It was never bought or sold, but rather from 1526 onwards, it was the spoil of battle, passing back and forth between India, Persia and Afghanistan to whoever was winning the real Game of Thrones of the time. That's a lot of Game of Thrones references this episode. It makes sense, though, because that's exactly what this is all about, power struggles. The British, and specifically the East India Company, Satu's favourite, were not oblivious to the wonders of this diamond, and had their eye on it all during this fighting. The Mughal emperor in around 1739 was known to carry the jewel in his turban, and when he was defeated by the Persians and his wealth plundered, he almost got away with the diamond until the Persian ruler tricked the emperor by signing a declaration of friendship which involved swapping the turbans. With the British gaining domination of India by the turn of the 19th century, the draw of the diamond was becoming irresistible to the East India Company, with it symbolising their colonial superiority. They didn't strike yet though, but the newspapers in London passed comment when the then-owner was thinking of passing the jewel onto a sect of Hindu priests, saying, The richest, the most costly gem in the known world has been committed to the trust of a profane, idolatrous and mercenary priesthood, and argued that the East India Company should interfere to get the diamond back. It didn't take long for the East India Company to get their mitts on the diamond, as by 1849 the Sikh kingdom of Punjab was annexed to the British India dominions, and the 11-year-old Maharaja was compelled to sign the Treaty of Lahore, deposing him and his fortune. The Kohenor diamond passed to the hands of the British. They got it. Got it. You've done a really good job of explaining why this isn't about someone being like, oh, I quite fancy that one painting or that one diamond. Like, Taking this stuff is a big power grab for like money and power and also your like legitimacy. It's so true. And it was brought back in London, coincidentally, in time for the Great Exhibition so everybody could see it. And it was displayed pride of place and the public crowded to go and see this jewel. And how did the British react? With complete ambivalence. Are you serious? Did they, they, they did. were they like, oh, I thought it'd be bigger? Exactly. <laughs> no, really? All Amazing. they did was complain. So the Times wrote... After all the work which has been made about the celebrated diamond, our readers will be rather surprised to hear that many people find it a difficulty in bringing themselves to believe, from its external appearance, that it is anything but a piece of common glass. So basically, they'd never seen a diamond before, because it is a little bit what they look like. Like, they are really nice, but... I think it was because it was so pure, and it wasn't kind of cut or shaped into anything. Oh, I see, okay. It didn't look like an archetypal diamond. Oh, no one had gotten around to cutting it in all no. these hundreds of no, years. No, no, it was totally a spoil of victory. Oh my god, I bet the absolute next thing they did was start chopping it up. Despite the public being like, whatever, Queen Victoria wrote in her diary about how thrilled she was about the diamond, and said, I shall certainly make them crown jewels. And true to form, in 1852, the diamond was recut to make it look more shiny, and in doing so, it went down to about 100 carats, having lost nearly a half of its weight. Victoria wore it as a brooch, 
<laughs> you know, like, I, you don't wear brooches that I've noticed, but I wear them sometimes. And a really heavy, like, brooch will kind of sag, like, in your top. So <laughs> oh. she's just like this dangling massive Queen Victoria diamond. didn't have no sagging brooch. That's it was, true. like, centre of her, right kind of oh, above okay. her breast. Yeah, I also imagine that Queen Victoria's jewel remaker knew how to avoid that kind of thing. After it was worn as a brooch, it was fitted to a queen's crown, becoming uh, by 1837 the centrepiece of the crown, which went on to be worn famously by the queen mother. And it was last seen in public outside of the tower at the queen mother's funeral on top of her casket. So there's a lot of kind of infighting about whether this jewel should be returned. But because in a way, I mean, India is obviously where it's come from. And mm. who kind of if anyone deserves it, if you want to put it that way, it's India. But, I mean, it has come through so many hands, so many different circumstances, and it's now part of the crown. Well, yeah, what are you going to do? Like, lever it out of the crown? Would you send the whole crown back? Yeah, it's a really tricky topic, this it one. It is, yeah. As with all of these items that we're talking about. They are, and it's kind of a bold move to try and cover some of this stuff, because we don't really know the exact politics behind everything, but it is a really interesting story to tell. Well, I'll actually go on to tell one more, if I may. Mm, please do. And it's um, about... Tipu's tiger and Tipu's tiger speaking about this kind of who should own it and and everything this is a brilliantly ironic piece of stolen object so it's almost the size of an actual tiger mauling a British soldier so imagine this kind of massive wooden object this is tiger on top of a soldier it's even mechanical and it has a handle which makes the soldier's arm lift up and down and that produces a noise of like dying moans oh my god I do know what this is but you know what? I thought it was like something that sat on a table, like a really small yeah, little really mechanical big. thing. Oh my God. You don't get the sense from looking at it. That no, it you is can't really tell from, you know, the scale from looking at a photograph. Yeah. There's also a flap which exposes like a small ivory keyboard plays a two pipe organ in the tiger's body. So it's You pretty... know that I love a mechanical object above all things. So this object was owned by Tipu Sultan, who was the ruler of Mysore in South India from 1782 to 1799. And he strongly resisted the attacks of the British East India Company, but was sadly killed and his people punished in an attack of the capital in 1799. So in a true colonial dick move, the company divided up all of his treasures and the tiger was shipped back to London to be displayed in their new Indian Museum. It's actually the Great East India Company India Museum. This particular exhibition was really popular and the crank handle was able for full use for anybody walking by. So all of these uh, punters were like cranking it up and using the actual <laughs> mechanical object as it was meant to. Like they're in a fun fair. Exactly. The bad taste joke was reveled by the public and the irony was that in fact, obviously the British soldier had the last laugh. It's a pretty tortured, ironic joke. And all of this was mirrored in the fact that a medal given to all of those soldiers who took part in the violent siege had an image of a lion violently mauling a tiger. This object can be found today in the Victoria and Albert Museum, and it's an important part of their um, exhibition exploring the themes of colonialism. Whilst back in the 19th century, the joke may have been on Tipu, nowadays the sympathies lie more with the tiger. <laughs> And the presence of the object at the museum is more of a symbol of, like, British colonial arrogance. Now onto the big bad wolf of stuff that London stole. If you're not familiar with the Parthenon, it's a temple on a hill that stands over the Greek capital, Athens. It's so elegant and perfect in its design 
that it is often used as a symbol for the entirety of Western culture. Like the British Museum itself kind of looks like the Parthenon with its columns. Yeah, the Acropolis, which is that hill, mm. and the Parthenon are so cool. I've been there and it really is like awe-inspiring. Cool. Oh, I need to go. I haven't been. So good. Yeah, if you've ever seen a building in white marble, and I'm thinking of like the National Gallery or the White House or indeed Cher's house in Clueless. Important cultural reference point. Yep. You're witnessing the legacy of the Parthenon. It is extremely nice. But it used to be even nicer. Uh, The Parthenon's been through a lot in its two and a half thousand years. It was built to replace a temple that had been burned down by the Persians and was covered with huge carved panels of marble that show gods, goddesses, nymphs and humans. And they were all colour, weren't they? All of it was in colour. Yeah, because now they're like just bright white, but it's been a long time. But back then he used to paint all their statues and things with nice bright colours. And it told a story, didn't it? It told like a story of, I can't remember what it was, I think it was a war. Yeah, it's kind of an ongoing war thing. But one thing that's nice about it is it's got the same number of people on it as were killed at the Battle of Marathon. And um, the original temple was kind of burnt down around the time of the Battle of Marathon. So this was their their chance to remember those people. The people who built it, including probably actual Socrates, uh, famous philosopher, and sculptor and like stonemason, that was his day job when he wasn't being a philosopher, they might have hoped it would stand forever. And it's done incredibly well to make it this far through centuries of war, almost intact. And as a side note, if you want to go and see what the Parthenon looked like in its true glory, do you know where you'd go? I do know what you're referencing because we've been there together. In Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, like an actual life-size replica of the Parthenon. Yeah, we've been to Nashville. We have we didn't actually make time to go and see the replica of the Parthenon. Maybe we should no, have. We're too busy with the country music. So the Parthenon is in fact uh, not entirely intact. If you fast forward 2,000-ish years from Socrates and other famous Athenians... Uh, you'll get to 1799 and Mr. Thomas Bruce, who was the seventh Earl of Elgin. He is the British ambassador in 1799 to the Ottoman Empire, which uh, covered Greece and Turkey, but they were occupying Greece at the time. Britain had just become an ally of the Ottomans because this was the era of Napoleon and absolutely everyone hated France. Has anything changed? (laughs) That's that's quite a British imperial joke, like to hate on the French. We like the French now. Elgin was a pretty typical British aristocrat. He came from Scotland rather than London, but he went to boarding school at Harrow and Westminster School, which is in London, uh, where he presumably learnt to squash his emotions firmly down in service of the empire. And he had a seat in the House of Lords that he never used. So, so far, so standard. He'd been bouncing around Europe as a diplomat when he was finally sent to the embassy in Constantinople. So in 1802, Lord Elgin decided to go on a trip to the Parthenon. Just a little quick trip with a professional painter, a couple of drawing people, a person who made models and a team of builders. Because the Ottoman government, known as the Put, was skittish about Napoleon, they were feeling very generous towards the British, who they hoped to protect them. So they let Elgin make all the models he liked and just said he could pick up a few stray bits of stone that had fallen off. Because what had happened was, like, tons of times, bombardments and things had happened in Athens and quite a lot of bits of stone had fallen well, off. I think what I remember, the, the main cause of its kind of destruction, is that it was used to house gunpowder mm. during a particular war. And obviously gunpowder, famously volatile, it exploded. Oh, no, and that's okay. where the roof came off and everything. So it all went kind of... Oh, okay. Yeah. I had assumed that it was, like, damaged 
by someone bombarding it, but it was more like the bombarding was going in the other yeah. direction. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What the Ottomans didn't mean when they let Elgin go and do this uh, was obviously not, by all means, saw off 50 slabs of marble from the side of this temple and take them home with you, because that's just not what anyone would intend. Unfortunately, that is what Elgin and his builder crew did, and they weren't even careful, as they damaged the building itself by hacking off the marbles, so it's in really bad state. Edward Daniel Clark, who is a travel writer, happened to be there to watch part of the removal. And he's described how uh, one of the pieces of sculpture was being raised up by the builders, but a part of the adjoining masonry was loosened by the machinery, and down came the fine masses of pentelican marble, scattering their white fragments with thundering noise among the ruins. Oh, God. Yep. To recap... That's the marble that may have been sculpted by the very hands of Socrates during the establishment of Western civilization. Not to put a too fine point on it. They just did not care. They just like wanted to take whatever. Something interesting as a kind of seg, though, is that I find it interesting that a traveller who was writing described how like Elgin was being a bit of an idiot mm-hmm. here. And the, the reason why we know what the original Parthenon looks like was because of a travel writer, oh, an really? ancient Egyptian travel writer. So there's these travel writers that not like no official function throughout history have been able to kind of shed some really important light on things. It's a really amazing like type of literature, travel writing, and it gets really like no praise because I think it dates quite quickly. Like it has a period of time where no one really wants to read about what things were like 30 years ago. But then when you get into historical research, suddenly travel writing becomes amazing because there are also things that photographs can't show you. Similarly, I've got a book about London that was written like to go to the cool places in London. Mm. And I think I got it in like maybe 2000. And obviously it talks about loads of things that have gone yeah and there's such an interesting glimpse into the things that we could have like experienced like the um old witch tube station was like used as a bar for a few years you know and it was telling you how to get into this bar in the old witch tube station you just never know that would have been cool on the strand yeah and i went to google it to figure out when it was because i'm sure i went there and there's practically nothing on it so the only place sometimes you can find the information is travel writers yeah, I think sometimes we imagine that like everything that happens during the internet era at least will be like stored on there and be able to find it. But like very, not everything is kind of super official. You know, like websites, domains run out and you, like, you, you know, you find broken links in old websites. You're like, oh, I guess I just won't know about that. So Elgin's excuse later on as to why he took all these marbles was that he was worried about them an argument that is actually still used today to justify their theft like oh they would have been damaged further when when things happened in greece but in reality even before he visited he'd sent people ahead to take the sculptures so basically he'd heard they were good and he was like oh i'll I'll have those he was a little bit of a a wheeler dealer so these marbles were packed up and sent back to london but he followed them but he was a bit unlucky because he was captured by the french on the way home because obviously hostile uh, scenario going through france at that time so the marbles got home before he did and by the time elgin managed to get home his wife had left him and he was relatively broke after having to bail himself out of napoleonic prison he displayed the marbles in a room of his house on park lane with this idea that he was going to turn it into a museum. So it wasn't that broke, he was living in Park Lane. I know. It's very relative when you're an 18th century lord as to what broke means. And Elgin had some very fancy guests along to view the marbles, including the famous actress, Mrs. Siddons. And that's kind of, again, like journalism and society pages were a really good record of things that happened. You wouldn't know about this room with some, at that time, not that like thought of marbles, unless like gorgeous Mrs. Siddons had gone along. Interesting. 
Sir Elgin was relatively short on money, so he wrote to the government to ask them to buy the marbles, saying it had cost him £62,440 to get them to the UK, and he wanted at least that. The government offered him more like £30,000. The assassination of Prime Minister Spencer Percival during the negotiations threw a spanner in the works, and Elgin became increasingly desperate. Napoleon escaped from his prison in Elba. Like, it was a historical event really got in Elgin's way during this period of time. And the government were getting less keen on the idea of spending government money on art when they could be buying ammunition. Elgin eventually haggled them up to £35,000. He's got an insignificant amount of money for something that wasn't him in the first place. That's true, but like from his perspective, he did sink a lot of money. Well, whether it was true or not, but he sunk all this money getting them home. And yeah, maybe he should have just left them where they were. But one thing he did negotiate is that they had to call them the Elgin Marbles. The sculptures were finally moved to the British Museum, where today they occupy a lovely long gallery. I've seen them and they are beautiful. Uh, so have you seen them? I've seen the ones at the Parthenon. Well, I was going to say, so I've been to see the marbles and you've seen the Parthenon. So between Together, us, yeah. we've got an idea. There's the Acropolis Museum, which is opposite the Parthenon. Yeah. And that has like a kind of life-size hall, which would be what the Parthenon uh, freezes and everything look like. And they've got like all of the originals and then a stone recreation underneath it, which is like at the British Museum. So it's really kind of like shade-throwing. About which ones? Yeah, everything I've heard is that the museum is very passive aggressive in its approach to to mentioning where the marbles actually are. For the avoidance of any doubt about it, like now it would be completely safe, both politically but also kind of like technologically, with the curators to send the marbles back. So that's not a reason to keep them. Like they'd be fine in Athens. The British Museum say, and I don't necessarily disagree, that they both tell complementary but different stories. I just don't even know where to settle on this topic. Well, in that case, we'll move on. Indeed. The last object that we'll talk about is the uh, Rosetta Stone, which I think is more of a famous name than sometimes it is a famous object. I agree with that. When you Google Rosetta Stone, you don't get the Rosetta Stone. No. You get like the language training program and all sorts of other things that are like named after it. So maybe interesting to find out why we have that language platform from the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or I could just keep interjecting. I was going to say another thing is that it's become a turn of phrase that people will say it's the Rosetta Stone of this other thing without ever actually... I've never heard that used. Haven't you? No. Like, it's that it's the key to everything. Oh, I see. Okay, well, now I'll use it. So it is one of the most famous artefacts in the world. And I think its value lies not in its craftsmanship, but rather in its written content. So it's a different kind of object to the ones we've described. The stone is actually a broken part of a larger stone slab and has carved into it the same message, one after the other, but in three different languages. The first is Egyptian hieroglyphs. The second is Demotic. And the last bit is in ancient Greek. Is Demotic a language? It's kind of, yeah, it's, an, it's an, again an Egyptian language, okay. but used, um, I think, for the common people. Of I Egypt. was going to say, because the word Demotic is sometimes used about languages, like there's a Demotic version of ancient Greek. Right, that's it. The common version. Yeah. yeah. And the writing allowed language experts to decode and translate the previously unreadable Egyptian hieroglyphs which allow translation of so many other artefacts. It's literally the best object ever. Imagine finding that and figuring out what it could do. That is literally so excited. It's so great. Like code cracking is one of the coolest things. It is totally code cracking. And you look at it and it doesn't really look as exciting as its content. 
the message on the stone is actually fairly dull. And <laughs> you're really selling this. If you're saying like the actual content, even of the stone, wasn't like this special cool message, it was a copy of an original decree, which were from the priests of a temple in Memphis, in India, not in Tennessee. No, I wish it was. <laughs> who were pledging their support to King Ptolemy V in the second century BC. The message was put in every temple in Egypt, so it was kind of like modern-day leafleting. And the reason that the message was in three different languages was because ancient Greek was used as the language of the rulers of Egypt. The Demotic language was, as we said earlier, for the common people. And then the Egyptian hieroglyphs were a kind of nod to the ancient form of high language suitable for a priestly decree. So the reason that the stone is called Rosetta is because it's a name used by Europeans for the area by the Nile in Egypt called Rashid. And at the turn of the 19th century, Napoleon Bonaparte was campaigning in Egypt to try and dominate the East Mediterranean while Britain were taking over India. Whilst digging some foundations for a fort, a group of French soldiers came across a very old wall which had inscriptions on it. And an officer in charge thankfully realised the importance of this discovery. The stone was removed and copies of the text were made by rolling paper on the stone and etching away until an impression had been made. And then these copies were sent back to France. And when the Rosetta Stone was copied, I mean, arguably, I think the true value of that artefact was kind of unleashed with the language being shared. So the stone really just became a symbol of an important discovery rather than necessarily the discovery itself. But I suppose that's not really how dueling powers deal with our historical artefacts in practice. No, they want to be able to show off something physical. Yeah. And by 1801, the British were making gains in Cairo. So fearing their safety, the French expedition retreated to the safety of Alexandria and they took the Rosetta Stone with them. But the British and Ottoman forces besieged Alexandria and forced the French into a surrender. And as part of the terms of the capitulation of Alexandria, the French were to give up all the antiquities in their possession. Ironically, if they'd left the Rosetta Stone back where they found it, and stayed in Cairo, under the terms of the deal, the French would have actually been able to keep the Rosetta Stone. Oh, human endeavour! <laughs> the French weren't obviously keen on giving up the stone despite this treaty, and the French general who found it refused to give it up, and he claimed it to be his private property outside the jurisdiction of the accord. So fearing a hostile response, some more political French officers handed the stone in secret in the streets of Alexandria mm. and advised the British to take the stone home before the French troops twigged it was gone. It must have been really tricky and political at the time. Mm, sounds like a spy caper. But obviously, during all these squabbles between the French and the English about who could own this Rosetta stone, nobody asked the Egyptians if they actually wanted to keep their own item. And as soon as the stone was in British control, it was shipped back on the HMS L'Egyptienne. Well-named ship. Um, I've got a little bit more on this. So the Rosetta Stone is journeying towards London. And Colonel Tomkins Turner of the British Army was the lucky man whose job it was to bring the stone back. He was thrilled to be able to say that it was a proud trophy of the arms of Britain, not plundered from defenceless inhabitants, but honourably acquired by the fortunes of war. Sure. They say that about everything. He arrived in London in March 1802, which is exactly when Elgin was doing his little Parthenon shuffle. I mean, pretty much 1800 all the way to like 1900. Mm. There's a lot of stealing going on. Yeah, it's a key moment for stealing stuff. Colonel Turner handed the stone over to the Society of Antiquaries, one of the many great-sounding niche societies of 18th and 19th century London. If I were a gentleman of that time, 
I would have done nothing but spend my day circulating around my many niche societies. Opposed to now, where you never <laughs> circulate in niche societies. <laughs> the Society of Antiquaries is actually still going, I've discovered. Go join then. I, well, you have to be voted in by existing members, and I don't know anyone who's in it, and I suspect we're not really the same type of person. But I, you might see me hanging around Burlington House shortly, uh, hoping to befriend someone who's running in those circles. Uh, Burlington House was also where the Elgin marbles were stashed in between uh, Lord Elgin's room on Park Lane and their trip to the British Museum. They just like put them in Burlington House for a bit. So uh, the stone, the Rosetta Stone was further copied and disseminated before making its way to the British Museum, where it's been almost ever since. It's only left the premises twice. Once during 1917, when the curators were worried about the bombing, they kept it in the postal railway underneath Hoban. We've talked quite a bit today about like abandoned railways mm. and stuff, which is such a cool topic. But the postal railway was a rail network that ran underground to deliver letters. The coolest thing. Is that with the horse and carriage? There were little ponies, I think, yeah. Amazing. Right. There's a museum dedicated to it now, which we should go to. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll go to that one on my own. The stone was also led to the Louvre in the 1970s, which I read in a book uh, from the British Museum. But weirdly, the British Museum website denies this. It says it's only ever left once to go to the, the postal railway. How odd. It is weird. So I wonder if they regret it. One note about how times have changed in museums since 1802. A little bit like Tipu's uh, tiger, actually. For about five decades, the Rosetta Stone was literally just on a plinth with nothing covering it. And you could just have a little rub of it if you felt like touching the Rosetta Stone. Isn't that wild? I mean, I'm not surprised. People wouldn't really think about protecting it. They didn't really think about preserving stuff for like future generations. It was all just like entertainment to them, basically. And yeah, showing off. It's now obviously behind a glass case, so... Don't visit. It sounds really boring to look at, according to you. I'm pretty sure I've seen it and I can't remember. I mean, imagine a stone, stone with some writing on it. Job done. And the writing's not even some kind of like a magic spell no. that you can uncover. I kind of really like the Rosetta Stone because it is an example of something that its content is far more important than its actual mm. object self. It's a shame it doesn't look better because... Do you know what you can do, actually? What? On the British Museum, they have a rendering of it, a 3D rendering, and you can like zoom in, in and out, all around it. And I mean, it's a much better way of looking at it Job for done. the information within it. Yeah, don't, don't make a trip to the British Museum for that. Go and see some of the, the mummies. So, we've hinted a little bit about like the politics of, this, of what's going on in this episode. And just to be clear, while we have ragged on the British Museum a lot... No one loves museums more than I do. Actually, I think that was quite clear. I can attest that you <laughs> definitely is a museum lover. I love museums. There's something in, just incredibly satisfying to me about like, there's this lovely, cool building, literally nice and cool. And you can look at all these pretty much the world's best objects. And it's all neatly arranged with labels. It's just like a really nice experience. In the past, taking stuff from other countries so they don't now have the chance to have the tourist trap that is the British Museum. You know, like all of these things are built up to London being a really wealthy place and like a well-visited place, an exciting place to live. We've denied that to other people. And, you know, talking about Benin City being raised to absolute dust, it, it really hurts. Like that's not a nice thing to think about. And as a museum enthusiast... When I was, you know, reminding myself how much I love those Benin bronzes, I thought, oh, maybe one day I'll do a little trip. And I looked and there is nothing to see in Benin City. That's you really cannot sad. visit anything, not even a ruin. But I mean, the fact is, I can't think of a good museum in London that you have to pay anything to get into. 
that's true and that makes the argument for it being like the global museum for everyone much stronger and as you can look at things online in digital collections that gets better and actually one thing I did do while we were researching this is I spoke to someone who works at a learning team for one of the big museums in London and just like heard a bit about the big efforts they're going to to encourage all sorts of people to be able to go to museums to feel welcome and that starts when you're a kid so there are definitely steps being made to make them more accommodating places that are accessible to everyone. Really, the ownership of artefacts and objects is definitely kind of a tricky subject. And we've probably got nothing particularly new to add to the debate. But what we do know is that for better or worse, London is home to some pretty awesome items with some pretty sensational stories. And perhaps one day in the future, someone will be like able to download our podcast into some kind of magical orb, which traps like the copy of in time, so no other copies can be made and this magical orb contains our podcast and i only hope when that happens that india or nigeria promptly steal it <laughs> i strongly agree thank you for listening to fierce city telling the tales of our very favorite city in the world and our home london if you like our podcast then please subscribe or write us a review um i heard on a podcast the other day the host saying they don't get paid to do this and i was like wow what if people think that we somehow get paid to make this God, no. shambles of a podcast <laughs> we, we pay to make this we podcast. very much do in uh, in time and money um so something that is really helpful is to write nice reviews or give us a rating it helps other people find spread us spread the word yeah we're doing this entirely for attention so that would be great you can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch or let us know what topics you would be interested to hear or you can tweet us at Fierce City Pod. As usual, a shout out to the composer of our music, Joshan Mahmood, who worked at the British Museum for a long time with his wife. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.